Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 21st of the 11th. Michael, how have you been? We have been, Gary, we have been. And how are you? I'm good. So this week we have the Workers' Party coming out with a policy that is finally in adherence with reality. And doing so in a fashion I think is legitimately better than the standards adhered to by most of the major parties. We have Tony Houlihan coming out to tell the world that while certain members of Neffet may have changed their views about antigen testing, he ain't one of them, and he wants you to know that. We have an update on the Whitegate power station. We have the Green Party having to admit that one of their stated policy aims is currently illegal under EU law, and we have a uh, very short discussion of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which has now ended, and a little bit about the uh, the culture of America and the difference between that and European cultures that makes it quite difficult to analyse some of the things about this trial. Last week we were talking about Tony Hulan and Neffet, and we were asking what had changed with antigen testing, because Neffet were massively against them. They were refusing to read reports that came out in favour of them, presumably because those reports came out in favour of them. They were calling them snake oil, and then suddenly, bada-bing, bada-boom, Antigen testing. And we had people like um, Killian de Gaskin coming out and saying that not only should there be antigen testing, but that it should be subsidised. And we're like, well, what happened with these guys? But the interesting thing is some of the reporting now suggests that nothing happened with these guys, and a lot of the members of Neffet are still against it. So you have news coming out about things like uh, Tony Houlihan, the CMO, CMO, saying that these absolutely should not be subsidised. And the tests will be used incorrectly, and they're going to lead to an increase in cases. And this is absolutely the wrong way to do things. So either Neffet is schisming, and we will soon have two popes, or the government has just decided to ignore Neffet on parts of this, or agree with particular parts of Neffet. You don't want to be always saying the same thing. But I did, I did have to, I will admit, get a certain amount of uh, comic amusement from a statement made by one of the uh, above experts where he said all those things you know they will be they will engender an excessive sense of security they will change behaviors they will induce laxness they won't be used correctly all of this and then in the in the second half of the sentence he went on to advocate increased usage of masks Gary uh not just that we should be more vigilant and make sure we're using our masks where we are already but we should be looking at using them in outdoor settings particularly in busy streets in outdoor uh, say at parties or concerts or sporting events this kind of thing when it struck me that exactly the same exactly the same things he was saying about the tests were the same were the things that they said about the masks and we have now gone from the masks will be used improperly and they will engender a false sense of security and they will lead people to be lax in their other protective behaviours and they will cause greater infections. To now that we have fetishised them to such an extent that we want to have them outdoors. No, I am in this ridiculous world that we live in, pro-mask, because I think they're, they're low cost and there is evidence of some benefit. But Gary, I don't think any reasonable person could argue that there is very strong evidence 
that there is massive benefit to the extent that we can actually explain, as some of them seem to want to do, that what we are seeing case-wise is, is caused by people not wearing masks and all the wicked unvaccinated people. But the numbers just don't bear that out. And whatever evidence we have for the effectiveness of masks in, 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 in enclosed uh, environments, the effectiveness of masks in outdoor environments is really not great. I think this entire situation is getting a bit weird because one of the first things I saw when I got up this morning, and I'm not sure if you've seen this yet, Michael, was that there there has been a press release put out uh, today on Sunday morning by Tony Hoolan. And it's up on the gov.ie website. I'll put a link to it. It is very unusual for a press release on these matters to come out on a Sunday. Um, I mean, occasionally it'll do what's called a Sunday for Monday release because it's too late for the Sunday papers, but if you put it out on Sunday, then you might get it covered on Monday, but it's... Mm. But it's about antigen testing. And in it, he makes a couple of points. But one of the points he makes, and this is a standard Neffet thing, say something, but present no data. He says that our data suggests that the majority of people who are using antigen tests at present are symptomatic, and that of those, the majority who get a negative result are incorrectly assuming that this means they no longer have to self-isolate or get a PCR test, potentially placing many others at risk of COVID-19. You should only consider using an antigen test if you have no symptoms, no is bolded, of the disease and only as a further additional tool along with all of the other public health measures to effectively combat uh, COVID-19. If it's positive, you need to self-isolate and arrange a PCR test. If it's negative, you may still have the virus and then you should continue to adhere to all other public health measures. Our data suggests that the majority of people who are using antigen tests at present are symptomatic and that they're using it incorrectly. The majority of antigen tests, to my knowledge in this country, that are currently uh, available are being acquired from third-party retailers. They're not being required from anywhere where the HSE or the Department of Health would have any record of their sale or their result. I don't think that's true. I don't think the department has data on that. Or if they have data on it, they have data on a very small subset of it. It's the kind of statement that just jumps out at you, isn't it? Our data. It's the, same, it's the kind of thing where you see our data, your first and automatic reaction is to say, well, could we see that data, please? Where is the data? I want the data. Yeah, I mean, you immediately see it and you're sort of going, but what data? What could you, what could you have on this? And if you have anything, surely you yourself need to know it's most likely incredibly fragmentary. And even if this is true, well, what that says is that there's been a dramatic failure on the behalf of public health authorities to properly inform and instruct people on the correct use of antigen testing. You know, there's a massive amount of government funding of, uh, of advertisements on this issue. If you're saying that the majority of people using antigen testing are doing so incorrectly, perhaps you should start telling them how to do it correctly how to do it correctly, in what circumstances they should be do, using it, and what, they, what the actions they should be, t they should be taking after ha having taken these tests. The amount of money that's out there slushing around them and telling us that we should dry our hands after we've washed them, and we should wash our hands after going to the bathroom, and that we should stand into the house if it starts to rain. I think that we could you know, throw in some more public health advice on that and say, teach people about the correct use of antigen testing, as they have done in many, many other countries. So if there is bad practice out there, 
the response is not to say stop using antigen testing, surely, but rather teach people how to use them in the best and most effective, correct fashion. We've been hearing this line for, I think, at this point, months, ever since it became possible to buy an antigen test and get it into the country. They have been complaining about this. In that entire time, I have not seen a single piece of information released by these people on how to actually use it correctly. So we've months of complaining that people don't know how to do it, but no attempt to actually tell people how to do it. But then again, Michael, that might be considered money spent on antigen testing, as we learned from Stephen Donnelly during the week, if you know we don't have that kind of money. And if we wanted to do that, we'd have to sell some nurses. Yeah, yeah. and we don't want to sell nurses now because you have to buy them back next year. Yeah, I mean, the market rates are not favourable. You'll only got it. You'll pay twice as much next year, I guarantee you, the way inflation is going with nurses. So you don't want to sell nurses. So you're no antigen testing. It's, it's... And it doesn't even say Neffit. It says it's a statement from the CMO, Dr. Tony Hulan. I don't know how time is. It feels like policies have become personalised. And people take attacks of the policies or critiques of policies personally. Increasing. I mean, I'm thinking going back to the children's hospital and other instances where there is at times it seems to me an almost irrational or at least difficult to explain tenacity in which people hold on to a particular idea long after it's gone past its best before date it really it has expired the opposition to antigen testing has expired as a reasonable notion it's being used all over the developed world I'm sure they are correct in that there are ways that you can use it badly. There are ways that you can make the taking of the test itself more or less useful. That you, the, the, the accuracy of the test will have a strong user element to it. And it may be that people are misunderstanding what they, they should or shouldn't do after they get a particular kind of result. But that's not about the test. That's about the user, and that's about giving the user the correct information, both the instructions on how to use the product and then how to react to the information they get from the product. Whitegate Power Station is still offline. You might remember we brought that up a couple of weeks ago. It was meant to come on uh, the 4th of this month, then it became the 15th of this month, then the 16th, then the 17th, then the 19th, and now they are saying it will be tomorrow before it's open. So it looks like we are going to get to its original opening date of Q1 2022, just in leaps of one or two days. Well, I suppose we can say we should all be happy that it's been a very mild November so far. And not much rain, enough wind, but not too much wind, and very mild and moderate temperatures, uh, with the absence of it. You seem to have taken this up as a little bit of a hobby. Uh, I'm sure it'll be there any day now. So we will see what happens with that. Uh, it would have been nice to have that up in November, if possible. And maybe we still will. I suppose it's entirely possible that it gets off the ground. As we know, it is a very efficient design, but apparently a very finicky design. <laughs> One of those finicky ones, is it? Oh, I hate them. Mm. Right. But board gosh, keep saying, you know, we'll get it done the next day. They're probably looking for a man that has that particular kind of a ratchet set. You know, and because the one they have, it's missing the number seven. They have the six and they have the eight, but they need the seven. And until he comes back from his holidays, they can't get it done. But the minute he's back from his holidays, 
he'll be in there and he'll get it done and it'll be lovely. I'm kind of curious why no one else is reporting this. Because every time they push back the date, they notify the markets. So there's, there's a public record of every time they can't do it. But uh, I haven't seen anyone but us mention it. I really thought the Business Post uh, would have brought it up because they've been quite good on the energy thing. But uh, no, I haven't seen anyone else mention it. And has there been an explanation of why? No, no. When I've asked Board Gosh about it, they've just said um, every statement has been, we've, we've informed the markets that it will actually be this date, and we have no other comment. There presumably is a reason why it wasn't a date. And at this stage, it's missed quite a few dates. It's not two or three. Up to about six, I think. Six missed deadlines at this point. Curious to know what exactly is going on, that it, that they keep making a prediction. If they weren't making a prediction, there just wasn't opening, that'd be one thing. But they keep saying, oh, it'll be open tomorrow, or it'll be open in three days, and then it's not. And I'd, I'd just be curious to know what is happening, or what isn't happening, that means that the thing isn't getting fixed. I mean, if, they, if it was getting reported every time they said it, they would look foolish at this point. A little bit, yes. Mm. I, I had heard there were issues with the fan, that that was the, because of its particular design, but uh, I haven't been able to confirm that. And I, to be honest, I don't know enough about the technology to say exactly what the issue is likely to be. But uh, they keep thinking they can fix it and they keep failing. So on COVID, the government is seeking to take all of the emergency powers they've gathered over COVID, put them into one bill, finally, and then bring that before the doll in order to extend the powers that they've been given until around June of 2022. There are many arguments for the consolidation of those powers that are good arguments because it's been an ad hoc mess up to this point and it would be good to actually get those into one key piece of legislation. The problem I think that the government have created for themselves, and this is more of a problem of political optics than anything else, is that they have asked the pre-legislative scrutiny of the bill be waived in this instance and i don't think that was a smart thing to ask for it's going to be passed anyway so why put yourself in the position of saying can we get rid of the pre-legislative scrutiny which only creates the impression that you want to ram through something without proper consideration you're going to get the thing passed that you're going to get it passed in much the same time with or without it so why create the political perception problem that you that you're doing by asking for this. I, I don't see I don't see the upside for it. I, I don't see that this is going to really slow down the process that much. It's, I think it's an odd choice. But either way, I, I think you're right. Seeking to waive pre-legislative scrutiny, because the bill, the time frame they're going to have to pass it, it's, it's going to be passed at incredible speed anyway. So just actually make this point. For listeners who aren't aware, what pre-legislative scrutiny actually is, is when you put forward a, a bill, regardless of whether it's a government bill or a private member's bill, it can go before a relevant uh, Oireachtas committee. And that will go through it before the text of the bill is finalised. And they may call people in to discuss it with them. And, you know, experts, those who might be impacted... Things like that. They don't have to, but they can. And then at the end of it, they produce a report and then they put the report uh, before the uh, doll or the Houses of the Oireachtas. So that's what the government is, is looking to skip. They don't want a committee looking at it, calling in experts to talk about it and then giving a report to a parliament. And that just looks a bit dodgy. Pre-legislative scrutiny can be waived in particular cases, and it does happen. But in this case, where you know you're going to pass it, there's no concern about it. It just kind of looks like you don't want anyone getting the chance to analyse it who might come out and say, actually, that's that's 
a gross overstep. But then again, this government isn't really good at politics. Like, they seem actively opposed to doing things in a way that makes them look good. If I can risk sounding all sincere and idealistic, there is a reason why you have discussions and debates within political parties and between political parties. And then in the Dáil, why you have these kinds of discussions. They're actually useful. It is actually through discussing things and debating things and having a place, a, a forum where people can pick something apart, that you make something better. It's not just a theatre where people can score points against each other by you know, some kind in some kind of debating competition. It is not just in theory, but in practice, a way of ensuring that the law that you get on the books is a better law than the one you originally had. And also, and this government should know this very, very well, avoiding creating situations where you have bloody awful laws with really stupid and obvious mistakes and errors. It may not have created any serious practical issues. We referred to, we talked about the other day when they put the legislation in regarding the numbers that could attend and couldn't attend uh, weddings. That what they ended up doing was, because they, they pushed the thing through and nobody looked at it, they made it legal to have a reception, but it made it illegal to have the wedding ceremony, the marriage. But that kind of thing, you know, that itself maybe wasn't. It didn't, if it didn't cause any particular practical outcome that was a very bad thing, and it was corrected. That, I think, was a problem in itself. It didn't cause any practical outcome because everyone decided to ignore it. Yes, that's true. And I would generally be opposed to the idea the government should pass laws and then ignore the content of those laws even in situations where they accidentally did something. And they didn't even fix it immediately. They didn't. And there is, and has historically been, a little bit too, too much of that in Ireland. An English friend of mine used to be tremendously amused when she came here first. And she asked a policeman once about some issue, I can't remember what it was. To which he replied, he said, ah, yeah, we had a law about that, but it didn't catch on. Now, there is a sense, actually, that that could be a very positive attractive if a law is just simply either impractical or unjust then but you can't you can't run it you can't run a railroad like you can't oh well we'll we'll throw it in and actually if it doesn't work because we saw this all and we have seen for the last year and a half whenever it's been denied officially but we have seen before ourselves significant differences in the approach to the policing of these regulations in different parts of the country. Local, did, did very much how your local chief superintendent or even local sergeant saw the, a particular piece of regulation, a new, a new rule uh, regarding COVID, how it was to be enforced to the extent that in some places, if you had to drive five or six miles to the beach and people know it, that was fine. And you're walking, you're doing it. In other places, it was measured to the yard and if they caught you, then you were back. Places that if people were walking, again, in behaving in a reasonable a reasonable manner, uh, socialising but distanced and outdoors. They were left alone in other places. They were set upon and berated and upbraided. They were very... What shops were allowed to open, what shops weren't allowed to open, what bits of shops were allowed to open and others weren't closed, that kind of thing. There were massive discrepancies across the country which were based on the perception that the local guards had. How would you... A certain amount of... What's the phrase, Gary? Discretion. Discretion. And they don't have discretion in these things. The law is the law. Oh, yes, I remember that one, actually, now that you mention it. That was a good one. That was a, um, yes, it is technically the law, but we're going to, without saying we're doing it, kindly ask the police not to do it because, I mean, what are we meant to do about it? We're just the government. Yes, that was almost literally what they did. What can we do? You know, 
with just the government. So you're basically you're going to have a quick word in the ear of the of the guards and see what they can do. That's just mad shit. And yet it was the reality of it. Given how badly they have screwed up previous pieces of legislation on this issue, I can see why they didn't want the pre-legislative scrutiny because what was going to happen was you were going to end up with some of the people from the COVID-19 observatory in Trinity called in, some of the law professors. Yeah. And is the government fairly sure that they've written the bill properly this time? I would say they're probably not. So you don't want someone like Oren Doyle being called in to then go, oh, well, you've made walking outside illegal accidentally again. Whoops-a-daisy. So just push it through. Because, I mean, what's the worst that could happen, Mike? And it's only emergency legislation. It's only emergency legislation, which will probably stay on the books for another 30 or 40 years, because you never know when you might need an emergency. And, of course, you know, has arguably been used in the past two years to push things which were openly unconstitutional and then when people tried to bring cases against it it turned out that the laws were not actually the laws and anyway the point was moot yeah point is moot so sure we'll move on probably not good for a sitting government to turn the constitution into meow something that's a, a little bit ephemeral well we talked about this before and no point to replow the field but there were times during this whole process where it, it has felt like the constitution is a, 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 essentially was just a manuscript or a like a, a degree that you put up in the wall in a nice frame and it looked pretty and you were glad it was there because you know you like to have a constitution but when it came to it there didn't really appear to be any practical way that an ordinary citizen could go about vindicating the rights that he or she thought were guaranteed by the constitution because the government didn't really care that much about what the constitution was saying and the president seemed to be happy enough to go along with the government and you didn't have pots of money to bring a case to the supreme court and even if you did have a few quid to get to the supreme court you managed to find uh the court willing to recognize that you had standing to take a case they would long finger it until such time as as you say the thing became moot and they didn't have to give a judgment anyway so at, at which point you have to, you kind of have to wonder, you know, it's great to have a constitution, but practically speaking, it's much like having a coat, uh, leaving your coat at home and getting caught out in the rain. You think, oh, well, okay, I'm soaking wet, but at least I have a coat at home. I did, uh, particularly, the willingness to do, by the courts to declare something moot, when the government had not declared that they would not bring in that same thing again, and the government had said that they were happy, well, the government's lawyers had said that they were happy not to push the idea that it was moot to try and have the trial taken offline. And we have no confidence right now, Gary, that we won't see exactly those restrictions reintroduced in the next month. Who knows? Do you remember the uh, the plan to ban petrol and diesel cars by 2030, Michael? A very dubious plan, yes. Well, it's Green Party. It's their policy. It's, it's part of what they want to do. Eamon Ryan came out there and said it was illegal. And did he... Did he, did he say that whether or not this, that had affected its status as Green Party and government policy? Uh, no. Okay. It didn't, didn't mention that bit. Colin Burke put in a, um, a question to him and he got, uh, Eamon Ryan gave a, a written answer back. And Burke had been asking, you know, what's the status on the uh, sale of the ban? Presumably because I imagine Colin Burke knew it was illegal. And Eamon Ryan came back and said it's a national ambition. Well, it's been firmly established, but by 2030, all new cars and vans sold in Ireland will be zero emission capable. The European Commission have indicated that a complete ban of the marketing, import or registration of new ICE vehicles, that's um, internal combustion engine, in a single member state is not compatible with EU law and an EU-wide approach is therefore required. It's a national ambition, Gary. Did you say that? It's a a national ambition which has been firmly established. I don't know. This gives me the... The image in my head 
across the nation, strong, proud Irish men and women, their chests stuck out of their eyes, fixed firmly on the horizon, all of them sharing the great national ambition that by 2030, internal combustion engines will be no longer seen along the green and verdant roads and bohreens of this of our our lovely nation mm. i think it's more i think it's an eamon ryan ambition I, I i don't detect amongst my compadres gary this deep longing to see their petrol or diesel cars fecked off the road and be told that they have to drive a, well if they can afford one they can they can drive an electric car if not they can get a bike i, I, I hadn't noticed that change in the tenor of the nation I'm not surprised by this at all. I think everyone assumed the ban would be illegal uh, unless the EU moved on it. Now, the EU has been talking about having a, a ban in place for 2035, but that's a proposal and they're getting some pushback on this. Um, I particularly liked the um, the Italian government's pushback, Michael, because they were like, yeah, no, fine, fine. Let's, let's ban all cars with internal combustion engines, apart from Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Well, yes, and um, maybe... Maybe Maseratis and Ascaris and Zondas, because, you know, they're nice cars too. It's a cultural thing, really. A, a Ferrari engine isn't an engine in the same way as like a Volkswagen or a, a Citroen is. You know, Ferrari engine is a spiritual thing. It's a cultural thing. It's like a pizza made in a wood-fired oven. It's like a fine Chianti grown outside Siena. It's something which speaks to the soul. And I think the Italians are absolutely right. And of course, they should be given every leeway in that regard. And if Ferrari were looking for people to represent them in return for even second or third hand Ferraris, I think myself and Gary be willing to take that work on. And then the French are pushing back against it because France also has Renault. France has Renault, but it has Citroën and it has Peugeot. I mean, France is a significant uh, car industry, certainly. But uh, Germany has a massive car industry. Obviously, Volkswagen and Mercedes and Audi and BMW, etc., etc. But are, are the Germans are less convinced to this, or are they just so relying on the Italians and the French to make the noise for them? Or would you say that there's going to be eventually a coherent or concerted push? Listen, if the Italians, the French and the Germans are all fundamentally opposed to this, there's no way it's happening in a million years. Even if the Italians, the French and the Germans are sort of vaguely not very happy about it, it won't happen. There was reports during the um, COP26, there was an agreement there uh, amongst a couple of governments and car manufacturers to end the sale of ICE cars by uh, 2040. Mm. But notably, Germany was not on that list. And it was reported that they weren't on that list because they themselves haven't reached a consensus internally. So if the Germans aren't willing to commit to 2040, when the EU wants them to commit to 2035, well, that would indicate that that plan is in trouble. And we will not be seeing a ban on these sorts of cars by 2030. The Green Party, as we, as we said the last week, with their whole let's admit that increasing the price of heating is good because it enables people, you know, it, it uh, incentivizes people to switch over to electric heating. There's been a lot of honesty from the Green Party recently, and I, for one, approve of it. Absolutely. Lots of it. We're going to make people's lives worse, and the thing we're pushing for is illegal. We're going to give you honesty, and we're going to give it to you good and hard. Then again, I mean, some might say that if you're going to be honest, you might want to not have those as policies first. Or you could be honest about other things. Other policies that are legal, perhaps. Yeah, like, that are legal. (laughs) 
and aren't suicidally unpopular with the voting public. I don't know if the Green Party has any of those. Actually, speaking of policies, um, the Workers' Party has come out in support of nuclear energy. Yeah, it's announced that it is Ireland's first pro-nuclear political party. And I don't know if they'll be running a candidate in my constituency next time. But right now, Gary, they're in poll position. That one single policy change has swung me over. Yeah, when I saw it, my initial reaction was to make a joke about the Workers' Party and finally embracing a policy that roughly aligned with reality in some way. But a good policy is a good policy, Michael. And I think we should support the Workers' Party who have somehow managed to get ahead of every other party in the country on energy. Yeah, a good idea is a good idea, no matter which way you come. Then I, I went looking into it, and it looks like they've been discussing this since at least mid-2020, possibly earlier. Which makes it even more impressive, to be honest. They, they actually sat down and said, we're going to have a discussion about this whole energy thing. We're going to go off, look at the nuclear thing, investigate it, come back, talk about it. This is what they did, and at the end of this, they came out to the conclusion, you know what, nuclear is the answer. And I think that for a modern-day political party, to think about something, to discuss it, to inform itself, and then to come to the right the right and, shall we say, reasonable, rational conclusion, you, you should get some kind of a medal for that. I mean, if, if only for the unexpected nature of it. Indeed. But, yep, they've gone, uh, they've gone Purdue. I'm kind of surprised that they beat everyone there. I mean, obviously they were going to beat, like, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael there. Mm-hmm. But I'm surprised they beat everyone. Ain't to were a membership in one of those polls, the highest approval rate within any single party for a nuclear policy was was from Ain't So well, now, now they would have to just be the second party in the country to come out in favour of it. Mm-hmm. The, um, the document they put together, by the way, on nuclear power is just called Why Nuclear Power is Necessary. Hmm. Nuclear waste, a manageable issue. Nuclear is cheap. Nuclear is near zero emission. I will put a link to the discussion document just in case people want to see it. Oh, that sounds very reasonable. Possibly the only time we're ever going to uh, say, hey, here's some material from the Workers' Party. Go have a look. Well, we wait with bated breath. We don't know what may yet be coming forward from the Workers' Party, do we? They may be engaged in a a new and fresh reproach to all sorts of issues. I'm looking forward to their next policy announcement. And do you know, Michael, why, when they're in their discussion, do you know what they talk about? What? Wind energy. Oh. And the issues with wind energy. How wind and nuclear don't have to be at odds. Because if you have a capability to produce nuclear power, you can use nuclear power as a baseload, thereby ensuring consistency of power while reducing the rate of nuclear fuel usage. That is an absolute... Um, Absolutely sensible thing to say. It is precisely the same point, in fact, made by Bill Gates when he was talking about his new uh, nuclear power that he's building in Wyoming. He's building a natrium station nuclear generator in Wyoming, little down there. And that's exactly the point he was making about the capacity to work, to meld in with the uh, the renewable sector and provide the base, the base under undergirding, I suppose you could say. To the, to the grid capacity. One other thing I quite liked about their uh, document, they talk about um, batteries, Michael, and the image they have chosen for this is a child sorting cobalt 
in the Congo. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not a unreasonable image to choose. I mean, I mean, it's it's the reality of the situation. That's the reality. That's the truth of it. The cobalt does not come up out of the ground all by itself. It's not a perfect policy document, but it is, by the standards of Irish policy documents, actually rather good and actually better than a lot of what we've seen from the more mainstream parties whose energy policies are very impressively put together, Michael, and very impressively discussed and fall apart if you touch them. Like gossamer cobwebs. Yes, just very pretty. But there's a lot of, you don't know that's actually true. You're just guessing. I'm sure the Workers' Party will be only delighted to get the imprimatur from the right site. Michael, a good policy is a good policy, and the fact they spent time actually looking at it wrote quite a good policy paper. I assume they then debated it, Mm -hmm. and then went, you know what, yeah, that's right. That is so far beyond the capability of most of the other parties, it is quite impressive. Kudos for kudos are deserved. Kudos to them. I mean, if this was Fianna Fáil, all of that would have happened up to the vote. The party would have voted in favour of it, and then Michal Martin would have just went, no. Yeah, I don't like that. That's not who we are as a party. <laughs> to which everybody is, who the fuck are we? Not that. The existential question asked by many, many Fianna Fáilers today. The Rittenhouse trial, which we were talking about, the trial of um, Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot three people in uh, Kenosha during the mostly peaceful protest, is over. He was found uh, not guilty, unanimously, across five charges, and nothing stuck at all. So there have been a surprising amount of um, anger about that outside America. The Irish Times said that um, he was a police officer. The, the English Independent appears. Said that he shot three black people. Now, I would be curious... I mean, that's that's the, the the level of it now, curious. That if you were to poll people in the United States and outside, and particularly, say, people who are <coughs> Democrat-leaning, as regards the race of the people that were shot, and it's worth pointing out, he shot three people, two of them, he shot them dead. He killed two human beings and injured a third. Uh, if I'd be curious to know what the... The, the the perception was of the race of the of the victims. From reading a lot of the, the, the commentary and stuff, you do get the feeling that a lot of people just somehow had the notion that they were in fact black. Yeah, actually I saw a lot of people who, uh, when they were watching the trial, said that they were surprised because they had assumed he had killed three black people as opposed to, uh, respectively, a child rapist, a wife beater, and a man pointing a gun at his head. Who had previously hit him twice over the head with... Yeah, there was a moment during the prosecution. Uh, that man came forward as the uh, one of the chief witnesses of the prosecution. And he admitted that he had hit uh, Rittenhouse and then backed away. Rittenhouse had pointed a gun at him but not shot him. And that Rittenhouse only shot him when he pointed his own gun at Rittenhouse's head. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, this was over. But the most interesting thing, I think, that came off it... Well, actually, now there's there's calls for a federal trial because America is so political, they're not going to let this go. I've really enjoyed the um, This Is White Supremacy in Action takes. They've been very fun. Yeah, lots of them, including one from the president. What I thought was um, particularly interesting, because it's, it's like this American murder trial. What relevance is it here? But it's going to be talked about here anyway because we are basically all American now. What I thought was particularly interesting was the ACLU statement after he was found not guilty. Yeah. 
Yeah, so they, they, they said that despite his conscious decision to take the lives of two people protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake by police, he was not held responsible for his actions. Something is not resp- something that is not surprising. The events in Kenosha stem from the deep roots of white supremacy in our society's institutions. They underscore that the police do not protect community of colors in the same of color in the same way they do white people. The situation represents an outrageous failure to protect protesters by the Kenosha Police Department and the Kenosha County Sheriff's Office. Indeed. They also created an environment where protesters, many of whom were people of colour, were not protected and treated as the enemy. At the same time, white militia members were welcomed with open arms. Mm-hmm. And then there was the standard of juvenile who travelled across state lines on a vigilante mission, uh, allowed to roam the streets of Kenosha with an assault rifle, and ended up shooting three people and killing two. These are the simple, tragic facts. Well, they may be tragic. I don't know if they're simple. This this was the um, director of the ACLU's criminal law reform project, by the way. He said that the trial highlights that the violence in Kenosha is not an anomaly, but rather endemic to a system built upon white supremacy. And when the community rose up to exercise their First Amendment right to protest against the police shooting a black man in the back in front of his children, police enabled white supremacist militia members which helped to spur rank vigilanteism. The result of this failure was bloodshed, the loss of lives, and enduring trauma. And then they talk about white supremacy some more. Now, some of that you may think is fair, but I would point out the counter, <laughs> the counterweight here is that Kyle Rittenhouse was a minor. He was 17, and he was facing life imprisonment. So, yeah, it's a bit odd for the ACLU to come out and say that the country's failure to jail a minor for life is... Uh, shows the system is broken and desperately needs to be fixed. That may be the first time I've ever read an ACLU statement that seems to be calling on more people to spend their life in prison. Uh, Yeah, they're not mad on the prison system. They're not mad on the idea of minors going to prison normally. But, you know, American politics, at least, seems to be an increasingly polarised place where people have their own particular take on an issue and nothing almost nothing is going to change that there was an american con a, a, a member of congress from the black caucus who tweeted much along the same lines about uh, irre- irreversible levels of systemic and institutional racism and white supremacist thinking and etc etc and one uh commenter said that really it wasn't a question that she was wrong or that she was uninformed but rather that it was a a case of an example of epistemic closure there is a and this is not exclusive to one side of it in the united states and i don't suppose it's exclusive to the united states that as we get more as our politics have become more and more totalizing more and more about not just the the nature of the policies, but somehow the morality and the goodness of the people proposing the policies, that we become increasingly incapable of hearing the other side or seeing that there might be another side. It's John McWhorter talks about this, Haidt talks about this. It's not new. I mean, Hannah Arendt was talking about this back in the the day, about the, the nature of political religion. There is increasingly an unsophisticated, unnuanced religious tone to the way these people talk about what they're it, it, it's They have revelations, Gary. They know the truth because they have looked in their hearts and they know the truth. It doesn't really matter what you will say afterwards with your own, what you say are your facts and your logic. 
the truth is there, they have found it, and they will campaign and carry on in order that that truth be vindicated. But it's a, it is, it's a, it's a it's the commentary on both sides. And, uh, you will have seen some of the commentary, I'm sure, on the, shall we say, on the right, about this. And the guy is a hero, and it's a triumph for the rights of the individual and to protect property all that and I don't know maybe there is something to that but it's a it's all a bit distasteful and even if the character of the people that died was not pristine Gary and nobody can say that two people were killed it's not something that you it, this is not an outcome you should be looking for in your civil discourse you know when there's a protest at the end of it well how many people got killed oh there's only two or three that's not too bad for all that American cultural norms have reached out across the English-speaking world and have, in many places, replaced more traditional norms, there are certain norms that haven't made it across. And the American approach to guns and property are ones that have not really made it abroad. No, there's a fundamental historical cultural divide there. I, did you ever watch the, the West Wing? The West Wing was basically it was Aaron Sorkin's wet dream of what it would be like if Kennedy had lived and had 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 a PhD in economics and hadn't slept around. So horrendously wrong then. <laughs> Martin Sheen was fantastic. It was a great show. And when it only did the personal stuff, it was very good. It became a little bit hard at times. But it would have been Clinton-style politics, you know? Um, not uh, And they're talking... One of the, the hot-button things, in, of course, was... Gun control. Democrats are for sensible, reasonable gun control. And the Republicans want small children to be going around with heavy machine guns. And that's just madness. And at one stage, anyway, in, 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 the president asked, well, it's an eminently reasonable question. The Swiss have more guns than we do. So-and-so is more. We kill more people. It, I mean, it's not like the American people are just more violent than other people. Well, you know what, Gary? Maybe they are. It just may be they. It, is a more, it may well just be a more violent culture. That whole cowboy frontier culture, that where the the gun, the rifle, the handgun was so deeply embedded, the rights of the property. I mean, in the United States, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to try it. I mean, but I certainly wouldn't try to try it here. If the police come into your house, you actually, depending on the obviously the circumstance, in the absence, certainly in the absence of a, of a warrant, but even in the, it, 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 with a warrant, if you feel threatened, you have the right to defend yourself. Um, can you imagine? I don't think that would go down quite so here if you tried to defend yourself against armed police coming into anywhere in Europe. You would find yourself uh, on the wrong end of the law very quickly. They have a different... Their relationship with guns is just very, very different to ours. But Gary, is that is that maybe an evolutionary thing? Maybe our, our relationship with guns was different 40 or 50 years ago. But gradually what has happened is all over Europe and in Ireland and Britain certainly, bit by bit... Governments have taken away guns from people. I mean, it was much, much easier to own a rifle or a, or a pistol or a shotgun or any kind of weapon in Ireland and Britain, say, before the Second, before the Second World War. Very little regulation. But the, the 20th century was a history of bit by bit by bit, just making it more and more and more difficult uh, for people to have weapons and to be able to use that uh, well not use them, but to possess firearms. And we have accepted that uh, in the way that the United States because we don't have that kind of constitutional protection, perhaps, and because we don't have bears and mountain lions. There's also something that um, the relation to guns, I don't think, was picked up in a lot of the European analysis of this, because there was a, he had a gun, therefore everything that followed is his fault. 
Yeah. And legally in America, that's simply not the case. And you have people say, saying that there should be amendments made to the law in order to precisely that be the case. But in that, all of that noise, they seem to miss the fact that, yeah, he had a gun. One of the guys that he shot, as we ju- you just adverted to, also had a gun. And he pointed this gun at him, at his head. I mean, that seems on the face of it to be as straightforward an example of self-defense as you could possibly want to have. The, uh, the prosecution were terrible at their job. Absolutely terrible. But the case was awful. It was it was not a good case. And the provocation thing they brought in at the end, that was like a Hail Mary, but it may have worked. But I think at the during the closing arguments, one of the things the prosecution said when they were talking about why he shouldn't have shot and killed those men was that um, the phrase, sometimes you have to just take a beating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I may not be a, uh, an American trial lawyer, Michael, but I would imagine in that circumstance, you don't want to say anything that indicates that had he not shot them, they were going to beat him to some unknown extent. Yeah, because there is the risk that somebody sitting in the jury panel will go, fuck that, no. Sometimes I have to take a beating. No, that's why I have a gun. It's not to take a beating. That is precisely the reason why I have a gun in my house. So I don't have to do that. The valorization of it on the right in America has actually been quite interesting to see. When you say valorization? The the sort of uh, positioning of Rittenhouse as a hero. Not just as innocent, but as... Yeah, actually heroic. But then again, I don't know. I don't know what I think about it. Because I don't like I don't know enough. From having spent time in America, American racial racial politics are mental. Like they are legitimately insane. And this touches on those. And it also touches on the American views towards private property and guns, which are very different from anywhere else in the world I've been. So it's hard to it's hard to give an opinion on how correct a view like that is or not, because I don't understand a lot of the American points of view. I thought I understood a lot more about American culture before I went to America because so much of it has leaked into the wider world that it can often give a sense that America has no culture and it's identical to the countries you come from. But when you actually go over there, there's a lot that is actually quite different uh, and it tends to relate to property, guns or race and religion to a lesser extent. Race has poisoned so much political discourse that if uh, part of the particular drama that is ongoing is racial, well, then that's going to infect the rest of the the rest of the discourse, and it will immediately start to people will start to polarize along the football team lines of this is my team, this is your team. But also, just their attitude, their attitude to say the use of extreme violence is fundamentally different to ours, and you you can see this if you look at the numbers of people that die in uh, in interactions with police, which is actually much lower than people think it is. And it's certainly the, the racial composition of those uh, deaths is very different to that which when you ask people what they, the number of people they think that were shot by police who were unarmed black men, the numbers are far, far higher when people's minds and is the reality. But there's a very interesting discussion about this many moons ago between John McCorter, Glenn Rory and a guy called Boscos, who's Peter Moscas, I think, he's a cop in the hood. He's an American criminologist in John Jay College. Anyway, he talked about the uh, fact that if you look at the list of black men that are shot by police, uh, there are these horrendous shootings and that they tend to cause outrage. And sometimes that outrage turns into riots or to disturbances, go beyond mostly peacefully fiery protests. But he said he made, he made the point that actually there is another list which exists, which is just as long and just as weird and just as heinous 
of white men that are shot in really, really horrible ways by policemen in the United States. And the reason I mentioned it because here is the, the nub of the difference between with the United States, I think, and other countries. That when it's reported that, say, a 22-year-old redneck kid in his truck who was driving, having stolen cigarettes from some petrol station somewhere and was under the influence, is shot by the police. The reaction of, shall we say, his community is not one of outrage, but rather when he probably needed shooting. And I think that's a fundamental difference in culture, that there's a willingness to accept that that level of violence of a, towards certain kinds of people. And with certain, when, when it's poor, white, young, white kids who are being shot by the police, the attitude is, well, we know the kind of people they are. We know the kind of kids they are. They probably needed shooting. So there's almost no comment and there's, there's nobody that's going to go out onto the streets of the near of the, the city where it happens and start burning the joint down because they're so angry that the cops did this they just accept it these guys were, and some of them are horrible i mean you can if anybody wants they can go on google go on youtube or, and, and find that there's there was a case we think we discussed before guy of a guy who was in a, a hotel and was lying on the on the ground with his arms outstretched and was being given impossible instructions by two policemen who eventually just end up executing him i mean it's a hor- bizarre and I, they were prosecuted and they, they got off because it is very difficult to prosecute a policeman in the United States uh, for unlawful killing of a civilian. It happens. They sometimes are convicted. Floyd case they were, but a lot of the, lot of the times they're not because the attitude of the, the guy in the street was, well, if a cop shot you, when I was a kid and you'd go home, <laughs> you asked, had the teacher given you any slaps? The assumption was if you got a slap from teacher, you deserved it. Well, in in a far more serious way, shall we say, in the United States, that's the attitude. Cop shot you, and there's a pretty decent chance that you needed shooting. Yeah, I remember that case. That was a that was a bad case, and fully on video as well. And it's 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 a bizarre thing. I mean, you when you you know because you've got to the video knowing what what the end of it is going to be. It's hor- it's horrifying. Really, it's horrifying to and it's horrifying to know that no that at the end of the day, this wasn't considered to be murder when it's plainly, obviously murder. But it wasn't because the jury said it was. Yeah, well, by that metric, it was not murder because murder is a uh, is a legal finding. It is indeed. Murder is unlawful killing, and if it's not, and that's the decision of a jury. Anyway, Gary, it is uh, we're well into the uh, the lovely Sunday now, and I think maybe it's just time to let the people go and get out into the air, take their exercise, enjoy themselves a little bit. We shall be back on Wednesday. On Wednesday. I think we have sufficiently reminded people, Michael, that science does not move forward one theory at a time, but rather a funeral at a time. (laughs) And on that note, bye-bye. All the best.